Howdy. If you haven't already, make sure to follow us on all the socials. We are at History and Film on Instagram and HIF Pod on Twitter. My personal Twitter account is at TrackNerds, and you can always email me at Simmons at TrackNerds.com. Enjoy the show. Welcome to History and Film. I'm Rich Simmons. And I'm Logan Denning. And after four years, I guess it was, going through all of world history, one film at a time, in chronological order, we are kind of doing a palate cleanser of sorts and uh, getting into uh, <laughs> a, a tournament we've set up. Yeah, it's a tournament to determine who's the most interesting person that we covered over the course of the, the podcast. The only requirement was that the people that we put in the tournament had to be at least mentioned in one of our episodes and they were split up into four brackets uh the ancient ones medieval on your ass enlightened industrialists and modern times so split it up by time and uh we are in round two right now going through this tournament yes and i do think last week we forgot to mention what movies that uh we covered that napoleon and ivan the terrible were from Ivan the Terrible was a film called Ivan the Terrible, a little more obvious from the 40s. But uh, Napoleon, we didn't actually have. There wasn't a good movie that focused on Napoleon specifically, but he did come up multiple times because he was so important. So Master and Commander is set during the Napoleonic era, and we covered that. And then, of course, Bill and Ted take Napoleon from the Battle of uh, Austerlitz, I think it was, off the top of my head, and bring him to 1988 San Dimas. Oh, it's not. It is Austerlitz. It's not Waterloo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's definitely not Waterloo. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Because again, I see that movie so many times. Here's George Carlin, I believe, says Austria, 1805. The French have just invaded. <laughs> oh, okay. Now, and then the bottom shows Austerlitz, but it, it, he says Austria, so it's definitely not Waterloo. And 1805 wouldn't oh, be Waterloo. Oh, gotcha. And gotcha. and, it's, and again, <laughs> I have both this memorized. I was gonna say, I, <laughs> I, I just I remember them getting like scooped up uh, yeah, for some reason. Yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, but I I definitely defer to you on that one because you've seen it way more times than I have. <laughs> anyway, yes, uh, so this week's matchup pits Winston Churchill versus Emperor Puyi, the last emperor himself. Churchill is another one similar to Napoleon where we didn't have a specific Churchill movie, but he definitely is kind of always in the background, you know, for the first half of the 20th century and Gallipoli specifically was the a campaign that was kind of his idea or wouldn't have happened without uh, Churchill. And then, obviously, he's in the background all the World War II stuff. I don't know if we mentioned, mentioned him specifically outside of his role in the Gallipoli uh, campaign, but definitely someone we wanted to include. Yeah, and I think we're going to see today that basically, even though he was only mentioned in Gallipoli, basically anything that Great Britain was doing between, like, 1900 and whenever winston churchill died he <laughs> right, was involved right. in it <laughs> right and uh, and we've talked a little bit off air about how this matchup is kind of the ultimate in uh the role of agency and yeah churchill and puyi both have fascinating lives but it's uh, pretty clear that churchill was kind of the driving force behind his life whereas puyi was just kind of on a on a ride yeah and kind of more at the whims of those around him but uh, let's break it down with some full bios, and we are going to start with the lower seed, which is Puyi. Yeah, so before we get started, let me just uh, take a <laughs> sip out of my, uh, you tell them I'm coming and hell's coming with me, uh, Wyatt Earp tombstone mug here. 
Uh, yes, yes, rest in peace, Blyon Earp, lost to uh, Queen Elizabeth I, <laughs> and uh, apparently I need to start wearing a powdered wig or something <laughs> to kind of... Get the, uh, start painting your face white. <laughs> I do kind of have the shaved head like they did in the, in the you know, wig era, uh, so yeah. I, I think I'm ready for it. Right, let's bring it back. Okay, Puyi. All right, so Puyi, the last emperor uh, of the Qing dynasty... Born in 1906, uh, on February 7th, he became the emperor of China in December of 1908 at only two years old. Basically, the emperor had, the current emperor had died, almost certainly poisoned by Sixi, uh, who was the former concubine of a previous emperor turned de facto ruler of China. So the emperor dies, probably killed by her. She then names Puyi as her successor, and the next day, she dies. Or, sorry, the emperor died the next day, which was the day that she died, is the same day that she uh, announced that she was going to be succeeded by Puyi. Right. She ba- she basically knew she was on her deathbed, though, right? It wasn't like she oh, was... Oh, yeah. She was, like, yeah. she was, like, in her 70s. She was super old. Okay. And, yeah, 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 yeah. So she she was, uh yeah, getting ready to, to croak. So she names this kid emperor. He's removed from his family. At only two years old, he actually doesn't see his family again for like till he's thirteen. Oh wow! Like he doesn't meet any of the rest of his family. And all this is in the all this is in the movie too. Like we definitely check out this movie. Yeah, like, yeah it's like those are yeah the first two scenes of the movie. Yeah, the, the movie is pretty accurate. It leaves like a lot of stuff out. No, um, right. Especially like things that maybe wouldn't paint Puyi in the best light, because he we're gonna talk about uh, in a little bit. Like he he was kind of shitty. It has some of that, but oh, yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely less like, than real life. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So he's he's uh, the emperor. He's in the Forbidden City, and he's basically growing up, being treated like a like a god, like a god emperor. He's constantly followed around by these eunuch servants all the time. Which is like, it's a two-sided coin for him because they literally take care of anything he could ever want. They cook him these massive meals all the time. They're always, you know, they make him new clothes every single day. What? He never rewears an item of clothing. <laughs> because the emperor doesn't do that. The emperor doesn't wear reused clothes. He wears a new, a brand new set of clothes every single day. They even, they, uh, I read a thing about how they would even like, uh, if he had soup and it was too hot, he wouldn't blow on it to cool it. Someone else would come over and do that for him, <laughs> which I think is kind of gross. <laughs> yeah, for real. But uh, yeah, literally anything that he wanted. But also, he had no privacy. He was constantly always around these guys. They were, you know, inspecting and and watching everything that he did. And as he grows up, with everyone treating him like a god, and no one can discipline him because he's the god emperor, um, he kind of turns into a spoiled little asshole. Oh, who would have guessed? <laughs> yeah. And so he's he's like really cruel to these eunuchs in the movie. It shows him like making the one guy drink the writing ink. He has eunuchs beaten for just any perceived infraction. At one point, he's quoted, he was giving an interview with, I think it was a British author, but he was quoted as saying, Flogging eunuchs was part of my daily routine. My cruelty and love of wielding power were already too firmly set for persuasion to have any effect on me. So, yeah, he 
he was kind of a a sadist. But as a kid, and it appears, and, and well, you kind of hinted that you might have at least recognized it later uh, and, and grew out of it. But yeah, I will get. Yeah, I'm getting ahead, but. I mean, like, kind of, but, like, not really. <laughs> oh, gotcha, gotcha. So he recognized it, but didn't necessarily regret it. <laughs> right. And it is kind of a nature versus nurture thing. Like, he's a six-year-old kid who's untouchable and is the... Literally told he's a god. Number one ruling power of an entire country. Like, that's... It's too much. It's too much. It's right, It's gonna right. have side effects. Right. Anyway, so in 1911, um, when he's six years old... Uh, a nationalist revolution uh, basically takes over the country and they establish a republic. It is kind of a complicated situation um, without going into too much detail. Basically, by February of 1912, the rebels who had just taken over the country allow Puyi to stay in the Forbidden City and continue to have his servants and continue to have money. And you can live like an emperor. You're just not allowed to actually be an emperor and you're not allowed to leave. Which he doesn't know because he's too young to even recognize, right? At least that's right. how they depicted in the he movie. He probably didn't even, wasn't even realizing that anything was changing. Wow. Probably didn't even know what was going on. Because he's only six years old. Right. Oh, sure. Or I guess right, he's, right, right. Yeah, he's six years old at this time. Right. Um, when, he's, when he abdicates. So he continues to just business as usual inside the walls of this palace while the country outside is fragmenting into these various states. Because basically... Prior to this revolution, the country was actually ruled by these warlords, but they all kind of, you know, had this mutual understanding with Beijing. Like, oh, okay, sure, like, you're in charge, you're the big power here, but, I mean, in, in reality, each little province was ruled by its own warlord. Okay. Well, after the revolution, the country fragments, because now it's, you know, power vacuum. These people don't have to recognize Beijing as the, the true power of the country anymore. So the country fragments into what's called the Warlord Era of China. It starts in 1916. During the Warlord Era, one of the warlords takes over Beijing and reinstalls Puyi as the emperor again, but only for 11 days because then that warlord is then forced to exile, kicked out of Beijing, and Puyi is forced to re-abdicate again. Probably just as an attempt to basically say... I have authority over all of you because the emperor's with me is basically the idea. Like, yes. basically, I wanted to use yeah. him as a puppet real quick. Yeah. Right. Which is a common thing that happens to him, you know, again, with the Japanese <laughs> Time and time again. On. He, has, he has no agency. He has no agency for basically his entire life. So he's put back for 11 days, re-abdicates. The new warlord that takes over, uh, this is when Reginald Johnson, who's played by Peter O'Toole in the movie, comes into the picture mm. because the new warlord that takes over that forces him to re-abdicate says, oh, we want Puyi to get kind of an education. We want him to learn English. So they reach out to the British Foreign Office. They say, can you send someone to come teach our former emperor English? And Reginald Johnson shows up. In addition to teaching him English, he also kind of just teaches him about being a person. And, and not an entitled god. Yeah. Yeah, yeah treats him like a guy rather than the god emperor. He teaches him about the outside world, helps him with stuff like he uh, gets him glasses. Puyi couldn't really see that well without the help of glasses, and he was never given glasses because, oh, well, you're the god emperor. You are the pinnacle of, right. of you know, being a human. And yeah, can't admit you have faults. Emperors don't yeah. wear glasses because your eyesight's perfect. Wow. Um, so he didn't get glasses until he was yeah a teenager. So then in uh, in 1922, the dowager consorts, who are the kind of older women that live in the palace, they don't really have 
power per se, but they kind of do. Were they the old previous emperor's wives, or how did they? How previous did they get this? Previous emperor's role? consorts. Yeah, they're the previous emperor's okay, consorts. Yeah. So now they're the dowager consorts, and they okay. decide that Puyi needs a wife. Right. So they literally hand him a stack of photos of girls around the country, and they say, "Pick a wife." And his first choice is a. I'm not going to say woman uh, because she was 12 years old. But how old was he? He is, this is 1922, so he's 16. Okay, okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's still gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he chooses this girl, Winshu, and they say, oh, uh, actually, she's not good enough to be a wife. You can have her as a consort, but you need to pick somebody else. So he picks a second woman named, or I guess also girl, because no, no one involved here, I, I don't think, is over the age of 18 named Wan Rong. And he marries her, takes Winshu as his consort, and they're they're living in the Forbidden City. Yeah, okay. With his wife and his mistress, uh, but it's like all official, yeah. and that's, they just, here we go, we got some girls for you. Yep. So weird. Uh, so in 1924, uh, the Japanese, they annex South Manchuria. So this is, this is kind of the start of the Japanese trying to exert more control over China. Right. So they annex South Manchuria, and at the same time, new warlords take over Beijing, and these new warlords are not as nice as the ones <laughs> that took over before, because the ones that took over before were basically like, you know, okay, just like stay in the Forbidden City and don't try and be the emperor and whatever. We'll give you money and you can just hang out there. Well, these new warlords are like, uh, no, absolutely not. We're going to kick you out. Um, if you don't leave, we're going to probably come in there and kill you. And so Reginald Johnson is trying to find a country to grant Puyi asylum, but none would. Oh, wow. Until... What were they... Why Why not? That seems like, what would they be afraid of? I, I'm not really sure. I don't, I don't, I don't really Just know Just too much chaos in the world at this time, and we're not going to take that on, I guess. You, you would think someone may be like... Maybe. Yeah, anyway. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. But uh, until Japan did, Japan was like, "Oh, sure, yeah, we'll take the oh, because the they want the emperor. puppet." Yeah. Well, at not not yet, not at this time. But I'm sure that they were like, "Oh, we could probably use this guy later." Yeah, exactly. Sure. Yeah. Three D three D chess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So in November of 1924, Puyi he flees to the Japanese embassy, and he's then moves to Tianjin, which is a country in China, but at this time it was under Japanese control. So it's basically, he's still in what today is China, but he's basically moving from, moving to Japan. Yeah. And this is where we see him kind of rebrand himself from emperor to rich playboy in the movie. And this is kind of like uh, his sad rock star phase, because <laughs> he's like spending all this money even though he's Chinese, he's able to get into all the whites-only clubs because he's like, oh, I'm the former emperor, I got all this money, so they, he's hanging out with all these rich, you know, white dudes. But on the flip side of that, his wife, uh, Wan Rong, gets addicted to opium at this time, and his consort wife, uh, Wen Shu, divorces him and leaves. Okay. So he's like having this rich playboy but also sad person life in Tianjin. The partying doesn't make him happy, yeah. <laughs> right. Meanwhile, in China, Chiang Kai-shek and the Nationalists unite China after defeating the warlords. But this is still the Nationalists, not the Communists yet, right? 
Right. This is still the nationalist. So this is like Republic of China. This is like if you go to Taiwan, they're all big Chiang Kai-shek fans, whereas mainland China is like Mao Zedong fans. Gotcha. When I went to Taiwan in 2014, I actually went to Chiang Kai-shek's, his grave, his memorial. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's uh, it's insane. Oh, it's really? It's so huge. Huh. Oh, yeah. You have to like walk up this like giant kind of like pyramid of stairs. There's like a, you know how we have like the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, right. like the military guard at all times? It's the same thing, but it's Chiang Kai-shek's grave. That's crazy. Or memorial. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Anyway. So Chiang Kai-shek, take, he defeats the warlords, reunites China, um, the nationalists are in power now, and in 1931, Puyi says, hey, Japan, help me get my empire back. I'm tired of being this like rich playboy, not doing anything. I want to be emperor again. And so Japan says, well, you know, now that you mention it, we did just annex the rest of Manchuria and rename it Manchukuo. We can't give you your empire back, but we can let you be the ruler of Manchukuo. How does that sound? And Puyi says, that sounds good to me. And so they install Puyi as the puppet ruler of Manchukuo. And basically, he is a leader in symbolically only. Right. He's not, doesn't have any real power. It's just to give the Japanese, basically, they can say, yep, everything's fine here. The emperor is in charge and, you know, there's nothing to see here. So that, yeah, it's so that on the international stage, they can point to him and say, no, Manchukuo is its own independent state. And you might be hearing these crazy stories of these, of the racism going on against everyone in Manchukuo who's not Japanese and all the atrocities that are going on, the civilian executions and the war crimes. But that's not us. That's, you know, that's not happening. It's Puyi's in charge for sure. Uh, but in reality, it's it, yeah, it was the Japanese Imperial Army was in control of the country, and Puyi had basically no power. But he was not uh, innocent at this time. He was still kind of like complicit in what's going on, doing yeah. a bunch of messed up shit on his own. Uh-huh. Uh huh. This is also where so I came across a few references to him being possibly gay. Um, he he never had any kids or anything. He was married, obviously. I think he was actually married. A few times or he because he was married later on in his life, too. But they this is where they were talking about. He was like someone was quoted as saying he was biologically incapable of reproduction. Yes. Which apparently is a euphemism. It's like a nice roundabout way to say that someone is gay. Huh. And there was uh, at one point one of his like male servants had tried to escape from his palace because he was said that he was getting sexual advances from Puyi and Puyi had him flogged and the flogging was so bad that that servant died so then the floggers were flogged for killing that servant <laughs> it was like so it's it's one of those things where did he have him flogged because he was saying he was gay or did he have him flogged because he was trying to escape and he wanted to keep him as his own or to prove a point that no I'm not yeah right yeah anyway yeah Puyi's doing the bad stuff oh this is also where um his uh wife which we see this in the movie, and I'm... Kind of in the background, yeah. I don't remember exactly how they showed this, but there was... I remember something in the movie about, oh, the, your wife is having an affair with your driver. And apparently that was true. That's true. In real life, she did have an affair with Puyi's Japanese chauffeur, and she got pregnant. And Puyi had the baby killed? What? That's not in the movie. 
Yeah, that's not in the movie. There, I well, the pregnancy is. That's what's interesting. The movie talks about like your wife's pregnant, and everyone and or he's like bragging about it, and everyone's like, "Yeah, we know it's not yours." And then the movie right. just lets it go. He had the baby killed. Yeah, no, the baby was killed. I heard, I had seen everything from he had the baby thrown into the palace boiler to the baby was immediately poisoned as soon as it was born. I don't think that there's like a definitive historical record as to what exactly happened to the baby, but the baby wow. was killed. So yeah, still more that uh, entitled person than we uh, yeah than we'd like to think as he grew up. So yeah, yeah interesting. He sucked for sure. So then in uh, in 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident happened. I don't remember if we talked about this in the episode. A little bit, a little bit. But it's basically depending on who you talk to. It's at least the start of the Second Sino-Japanese War, um, which did go all the way until 1945. It was part of the Pacific Theater of World War II. Uh, but a lot of people point to this as, oh, this is the first battle of World War II. Right. Even though, you know, a lot of people say, oh, no, it's actually when Hitler invaded Poland. But this is two years before that. This is in 1937. And even though this was just between japan and china this war that is started by this battle ends up becoming the pacific theater of world war ii right so it's folded into the larger war and it definitely predates the right. larger war but right it didn't precipitate the european war yeah yeah right yeah that's a good way of saying it i do think that it's this is kind of uh one of those cultural difference things so we would basically characterize all of this as just part of world war ii you know, you have the European theater and the Pacific theater, and this is just part of the Pacific theater of World War II. But in China, they don't call this the they don't call this part of World War II. They either refer to it as the Second Sino-Japanese War or an actual Chinese reference to this is the War of Resistance Against Japanese Aggression. Or instead of calling it World War II, they call the war the World Anti-Fascist War. Oh, interesting. Which I think is kind of cool. I, I kind of like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, yeah, that works. Anyway, so during World War II, Hu Yi is in his palace, hanging out in Manchukuo, being a puppet ruler while the Japanese do all kinds of war crimes. Which we've talked about a little bit before, like like even like like scientific experiments on the Chinese population oh. and like horrible, horrible, yeah. like Hitler type stuff, right? We've talked about yes. before. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah like, like concentration camps and medical experiments on civilians and yeah comparable comparable to like nazi concentration camps just not really not discussed as much as uh the nazis and i don't know how much of that has to do with this but it's it's probably definitely a contributing factor is that after the war a lot of the japanese scientists that were doing a lot of this stuff and a lot of the japanese military people were given immunity by the us as long as they turned over the results of their experiments so basically hey we know it was like bad that you you know were purposely giving people hypothermia and frostbite and stuff like that and yeah those were all war crimes but as long as you give us the results and help us advance our scientific knowledge we'll we'll like let you go right like that is horrible let me see your notes yeah (laughs) it is comparable though to the way that we treated nazi scientists after World War II, like, hey, um, we know that you guys are like Nazi scientists and you guys, you know, but you guys also built a lot of really cool rockets and stuff that we're interested in. And even though a lot of those rockets were built by like, you know, concentration camp labor and you guys were all Nazis, if you come to America and help us build our own American rockets, 
we'll like, you know, we'll kind of turn a blind eye to all the Nazi stuff that you did in World War II. Yep. Anyway, back to Pooh Yee. Yeah, that guy. <laughs> in, uh, in August 1945, the Soviet Union invaded Japan. And this is, we don't have, we could do an entire <laughs> episode on the Soviet-Japanese relationship during World War II. Actually, the YouTuber Sean, S-H-A-U-N, has a two and a half hour video on his channel called Dropping the Bomb Hiroshima and Nagasaki. It's about the the end of the Pacific Theater of World War II. And he talks a lot in that video about the Soviet-Japanese relationship and how the Yalta Conference and the Potsdam Conference kind of shaped how the United States and the Soviet Union were both interested in Japan for the end of the war. So definitely check that out if you want to learn more, but we it's not really directly relevant to Puyi, so I'm not going to go into right, it. Right, right. But uh, basically for the entirety of the war, the Soviet Union had a non-aggression agreement with Japan, and then in 1945 they didn't, so they invade. Puyi is captured by the Soviets at this time. Well, sorry, just sorry, just to cut in real quick, even though it's not about Puyi, but isn't that yeah. at all just because you know, August 1945, that's when they got bombed. So it's almost just like, oh, hey, we don't have any reason to have a truce with Japan and we want to make sure we get ours. So we want to yes. kind of break that treaty to try to get some for the Americans get it all. Essentially, yeah, that's that's kind of what was going on. And yeah, like at, at the Potsdam Conference, President Truman... Winston Churchill and Chiang Kai-shek were there, but Stalin wasn't because they were discussing Japan and the Soviets were technically neutral when it came to Japan. And that's when they said, hey, we want, you know, unconditional surrender, but the Soviets wanted to get theirs. So yeah, it was basically like a last minute thing where, oh, it's August 1945, we're invading Japan. Right. So Puyi is captured by the Soviets. Wan Rong is captured by the Chinese. She ends up starving to death in a Chinese prison after the war. Oh, wow. And Pu Yi is sent to a gulag in Siberia and probably would have died there had Mao Zedong not taken control of China, turned it into communist China, and then said, hey, uh, you know what would be like a, a good PR image move for me? would be to, like, get the former emperor back here. So Mao Zedong asks the Soviets for Puyi, and the Russians say, sure, yeah, here you go. Because it's communist uh, communist buddy-buddy stuff, right? Right, right. yeah. So the, the Russians give Puyi to the Chinese, so he's transported from Siberia to China, where he spends 10 years in a Chinese prison, basically being reconditioned to live in communist China. And uh, after 10 years, he's released, and he basically lives the rest of his life as, like, a poor gardening dude, <laughs> and then dies on October 17th, 1967. Oh, so there's really not more detailed... So, like, I mean, obviously, it's a, it's crazy. I still think this guy is... It's, this journey he's on is insane. But basically, post-World War II, even though he lives for another, what, 15, 20 years, there's not really much other than, yep, Chinese thing. Uh, sorry, yeah, the Chinese uh, concentration camp or re-education camp, and then he's a gardener. Like, there's no real more details than that, I guess. A lot of that time was spent in the gulag and then 10 years in Chinese prison, and then he's released right. in... That's true, I guess not a lot happens in 10 years in Chinese prison. Like, it's not like, oh, and then he 
wrote a book or actually wait did he write a book <laughs> um, I, think or did, he, I think he actually did write a book but he was basically like spending that time just learning how to number one like be a person yeah again like how to just be a regular dude because his entire life he went from emperor to rich playboy to then puppet ruler where i mean even though he was like under the thumb of the japanese he was still like regarded at least by the public as this ruler figure and he's never just been a guy before he's never been accountable for anything to anybody yeah right and in the movie they do kind of do that too where basically they're trying to get everybody to confess and then so they do have him kind of write his biography and keep making him restart until he quote gets it right as far as the chinese communists are concerned and like you kind of hinted at it's the whole feather in their cap thing if we got the literal last emperor to be like yay chinese communism like that's a huge feather in their cap, and they get it. Right. Well, and I, I guess it was a. It was also like a thing where Mao wanted to contrast himself against the Russian communists who killed the emperor when they took power. Right. Oh, right. And he says, oh, no, I'm benevolent. I am, you know, merciful. Look, here's the emperor. He's, he's just living out his days as a guy now. Right. You know, we don't have to kill him. Yeah, imagine if Lenin had been able to say, oh yeah, the Romanovs, they're just hanging out over here. We go and see them on the weekends and they're like in the papers being like, hi, Lenin's fine. Yeah. Like, right. that would have been a hugely different yeah, uh, the PR. the Romanovs are just like gardening in Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it seems crazy, but that's what this is. That's what happened with Puyi. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That is crazy. So yeah, definitely a roller coaster of a life. But yeah, like we mentioned at the top, you know, basically he has... He has no agency of anything in his entire life. And when he does have agency, it's like to be horrible and like have people like beat to death. <laughs> right. But he he doesn't have he, he didn't take power because he was like the smartest or the most cunning or, you know, lead a revolution. Or, he just was like a guy that was born in the right place at the right time. And then every other time he took power from then on was just, oh, we can use this guy because he's he's the last emperor of this thousands of years old empire. And, you know, that gives us street cred on the world stage. And it's that all the way until the end of World War Two. And then he's a prisoner and just a regular poor guy for the rest of his life. The couple of notes I had that are only they're kind of more of their side notes. So we love those. One, he's much younger than Churchill, which I never even thought about. Like, I would, in my mind, you think about the timelines of their relevancy, I just kind of assume that, well, yeah, Puyi's older. But it's like, well, no, not even close. He's like 30 years younger than Churchill, which you just don't yeah. think about on the timeline. Yeah, because he, he was in his 30s during World War II. Right, and Churchill was in his 60s. So, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. crazy. For a reason, it's like we always talk about how the timelines mesh, and that's just something that, like, oh... Yeah, I guess I didn't think about him being 32 years younger than Churchill. Yeah. Because they died about the same time, I think, then, too, in the 60s, right? Yeah. And it's crazy, too, though, to think that, like, he's the last the last emperor. <laughs> um, but prior to all the stuff that happened to him, it was, like, the same line of emperors going back thousands of years to, like, oh, what was going on in... You know, who was ruling China when, like, the Roman Empire was around? Oh, it's the same thing. It's like the same guys, the same lineage. Right. Are they actually? I don't know. I don't know about the Chinese lineage, but yeah. Was the it's, it's, it's the it's the same series of emperors. Yes, that goes back to even like Hero 
which was like my third episode or something. Right. Yeah, Hero, uh, my sixth episode, was set in uh, 227 BCE. Yeah. In, in a way, that was kind of establishing China as a country with this line of... Of course, I mean, Chinese history goes back even farther than that, though, too. Like, it's it was basically the oldest empire in the world before it fell. Right. Yeah. Right. It, I, I guess, yeah, you're right. It's it's not the, uh, the Qing dynasty doesn't go back that far, because that only goes back to, like, the 17th century, but... As far as emperors ruling China for, right, the, yeah, thousands of years. The dynastic history of China, yeah, the Chinese empire goes back thousands of years. Like, I think even into thousands BC. Right. Hero was just more of a shift of, of like, I think when it was united versus, it's always, yeah. it's kind of interesting. You talk about like the, the warlords and all the different factions. It's like, yeah, that's what it had done, you know thousands or hundreds of years before it was kind of all of these fractured states united there's right. even a oh some video on youtube i forget what it was it was basically it was like an overview of world history in like nine minutes kind of thing and it was just mm-hmm. like china's united broken united broken united broken it just <laughs> over and over and over again yeah and then my other my other note was you talked about the the people blowing on his soup when it was hot for him and i did see yeah. someone on the internet uh, talking about that the biggest thing they hope that changes post-COVID uh, pandemic is that, yeah, can we now finally stop thinking it's okay to eat a birthday cake after a child has blue all over it to get the candles <laughs> up? Like, let's just, <laughs> let's just stop that. That was ridiculous. Yeah. And we all just did it without thinking. No, we're not going to eat the cake that the three-year-old slobbered all over. <laughs> <laughs> One final thing, even though Puyi isn't mentioned at all during this movie, we did also cover the warlord era of China in uh, Sand Pebbles. Oh, yes, I was thinking, like, when you mentioned the Marco Polo Bridge incident, I knew, like, either in Sand Pebbles or Ip Man, it, it had definitely kind of yeah. come up before and been kind of in the background of that part of the world, for sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I didn't even think about Ip Man, because that would have been this right. same yeah. yep. same time period, too. Yeah, it all, all overlaps. Yep. All, all very interesting. And again, how that's all kind of going on simultaneously with what's happening in Europe at the time. And just, yeah, anyways. Yeah. Hey, turns out we like history. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get to Puyi's opponent, uh, Winston Churchill. So again, kind of like with Puyi, we can't get to every little detail because it is just it is just kind of uh, kind of insane here. Uh, like Wikipedia divides up Churchill's life into thirteen time periods. Mm. I was gonna look and see what Puyi's was. It's got to be high. And then so now, so I'm going to try to simplify that into four for Churchill. Basically, pre-World War One, the outbreak of World War One through the beginning of World War Two, World War Two, and then post-World War Two. And even that, we probably won't spend a lot of time on. What's Puyi got? Just for reference, Puyi's Wikipedia only divides. So think about how complicated everything that we just went over was for Puyi. And his is only, uh, it's eight. There's eight okay, sections okay. of his life on Wikipedia. And Winston Churchill is 13. <laughs> and some of them are kind of small, but yeah, it, it's, anyway. So, I don't know. I, I kind of, I find the figure of Churchill fascinating. And I think it's important to recognize, like we've talked about with other figures, that no one is as great or as horrible as their fans or detractors say and at the end of the day all these people are just humans even if they like uh Puyi are told they're gods from the time they're born but i'm actually gonna start <laughs> with a serena williams quote <laughs> perfect for any discussion of winston churchill 
but I think this is important. So uh, Serena said, luck has nothing to do with it because I have spent many, many hours, countless hours on the court working for my one moment in time, not knowing when it would come. And I think that applies so perfectly, minus the tennis court reference, uh, to, to Winston Churchill. Because, not to jump ahead, but I think everyone kind of already knows where we're going with Churchill, is you can just make this argument that the first six decades of his life were him constantly preparing for a moment that we didn't know would ever come. And then when World War II comes around, you have this guy who was custom built to go up against Hitler in World War II. And I mean, think about like the whole Harry Potter and Voldemort thing, or the idea that like, if you're going to have this great evil, then hopefully this great good is there to meet it. Again, not that Churchill is all good, and we're definitely going to talk into some flaws in his, his character. But as far as the perfect person to challenge Hitler, it was Winston Churchill, and it was six decades mm-hmm. in the making. So I just think that is kind of uh, fascinating. And the other moment I always think of is, uh, you know, just to get keep the movie saying relevant, is in uh, Back to the Future when Marty gets, <laughs> actually Back to the Future 2, when Marty gets the, the letter that Doc uh, is alive and well in the Old West, and uh, he's got to figure out how to get back somewhere else where he can do his time travel thing. Uh, the guy that gives him the letter in the rain is like, is there anything I can do, kid? Do you need help? And Marty's just like, there's only one man that can help me. He's got to go and get the doctor. So same thing here. World War II, we're going to get to, there's only one man that can help Europe. Winston Churchill. Okay. (laughs) So let's start back at the beginning. (laughs) Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill was born on November 30th, 1874 at Blenheim Palace. It was a family estate about 60 miles northwest of London, and it's the only non-royal slash non-church home to be officially labeled a palace, and I didn't deep dive into exactly why that is, but it does kind of stand out as unique there. Oh, it's it's not because Winston Churchill was born there? Like, it was a palace before that? That's my understanding. Oh, okay. Yeah. His father was Lord Randolph Churchill, who kind of had the title Lord as more of an honorific because... His mom was a Marquess or whatever, however you say the female version of Marquis. So even though he was a lord, he did actually sit in the House of Commons, not the House of Lords when he was in Parliament. And then Winston's mother was an American woman named Jenny Jerome, whose father was uh, known as the King of Wall Street and just kind of made his own fortune there on the New York uh, Stock Exchange in the 1800s. And then so the two of them, Jenny and Randolph, meet at a sailing regatta off the southern coast of England. They were actually introduced by the Prince of Wales. And 15 months later, after they'd been married for eight months, uh, Winston was born. Nice. Yeah. So, lovely romance leading to Winston Churchill. Although his parents really didn't get along after that. And then also they kind of just ignored the young Winston because they were too busy being important people or socializing and kind of just, you know, kind of almost the... Well, you would see maybe it's this stereotypical British thing where like, oh, yes, we had the child. and He's off over there doing his thing. And, mm, uh. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and I just remember we have British listeners, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, like, this is not really like anything historical, but for, for some reason, most historical figures, I'm able to imagine them as actual children. But for some reason, Winston Churchill, when I imagine him as like a four-year-old, I just imagine like Winston Churchill from World War II, but smaller and like still wearing the suit and the top hat and everything. (laughs) (laughs) 
like still smoking a cigar as a four-year-old just like well they were all very well dressed back then so it's probably not too far off <laughs> like have you seen like the old pictures of, like teddy roosevelt when he was a kid he's like wearing a dress because that's just like what you put kids in dresses oh, right but, yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, he he does the board he does the boarding school thing. He's uh he's raised mostly by his nanny. You know the the parents are more just kind of like officially you have parents, but you know they're not really involved with the rearing of children, mm-hmm. especially for the upper class. You know, kind of like like they are here with, oh, with sure. money and everything. Yeah. So he actually was a bad student growing up, both like grade wise and even like attitude wise. And there's actually I just watched a YouTube documentary. That even had like a quote from his, you know, grade school report card saying uh, on the on the line for general conduct, you know, the teacher writes, very bad is a constant trouble to everybody and is always in some scrape or other. (laughs) (laughs) Which I I, I don't know, I thought that was perfect. And then they talk about how he had he just had no ambition. And basically, as he kind of grows up, his father, who's a prominent member of parliament, but also never quite crosses over to like the real big leagues with that. It butts heads with the prime minister at one point and just kind of his career, his father's career only is a, not a failure, but just he underachieves from what early promise he kind of had showed. And then he's kind of seeing this son who's getting in these, you know, fights and not doing good at school. And he's, his father is basically just sees his son as a failure while he's still a kid. Like he's basically given up on his son Winston, who just can't make a go of it in school. Yeah. Does get Winston into uh the Sandhurst military school after two failed attempts to even get him in. He does finally get in about the time he's uh, nineteen years old, so he's in the military school, figures, hey, if you're not a good student, let's just get you in the military and make a man of you, that kind of thing. And just as uh Winston finishes up at the academy, his father dies. So a lot of Winston's life, you can definitely kind of see is maybe always trying to get the approval of his dead father who never got to see the man he became. And it's almost like this thing that haunts him the rest of his life, always trying to live up to his father's expectations. And of course, he far exceeds anything his father ever did. And his father was kind of a jerk to him, but he also seemed to like always kind of worship his father and the idea of doing right by his father's memory. And anyway, it's kind of interesting. So as a young man in his 20s, he starts to see the world as part of the army. He makes a point to, he just really wants to see some action. This is a kid who just, school wasn't his thing. Socializing isn't really his thing. He wants action. And so he starts going all over the world with the British military to get it. He's over in Cuba, spends a little time in the United States, ends up over in India and it's in India where he really kind of starts making a name for himself. Also where he uh, meets his uh, four addictions, as he would call them, or someone called them for him. The things that kind of most define Churchill's life that he first encountered in India were danger, alcohol, cigars, and writing. <laughs> and it basically just, it always seemed like one of those things was taking priority <laughs> uh, for him. So yeah, he kind of starts writing. He comes to kind of a kind of a war correspondent while he's over in India. So like he is just really good at giving the summary of whatever battle just happened. And he was just a really good writer at giving the full context and laying the story. And then then when he gets back to Britain, you know, starts publishing these things. His accounts of the battles. Yeah, yeah, or account, just, 
Yes. Okay. So yes, yeah, specifically accounts. And again, I, you know, I didn't deep dive into all of the specifics, but yes, the campaigns and battles and just the context of what's going on in India at the time. Same thing when he goes to South Africa. He's writing all these nonfiction accounts. He's kind of working as a war correspondent slash journalist while also a member of the army and then turns that into writing maybe full books when he has the time. And they sell really well. And he kind of gets a, a reputation as kind of that. Oh, hey, the son of Randolph Churchill, who everyone kind of knows, was pretty prominent. He's doing all these things with the army and writing about him. He's actually a really good writer and all these kinds of things. He ends up down in South Africa, where he's actually taken as a POW after the it's during the Second Boer War. And the Boers derail his chain. He's taken prisoner. He escapes by, like, hiding in a freight train and then hides in a mine. And so that's a whole other story that kind of starts making a name for himself. So That uh, that sounds like that'd be kind of a cool movie. Like a young... No, absolutely. Yeah, like, for real. Running from escaping a POW camp and right. hiding in a mine. And, oh, right. I mean, obviously, uh, with, with all of the... Uh, there are a lot of uh, issues with the Boer War as far as, like, what the Brits did there. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but uh, but that, I don't know, that'd be kind of a cool story. Yeah. So so now with, with kind of this new notoriety, again, he's still young. He's still in his mid, just in his early to mid-20s, and but he's able to run for parliament and get elected to, to kind of start his political career. He's with the conservatives. He starts uh, traveling around, doing a lot of speaking engagements because, again, he's he's this prominent, fairly prominent young writer now. And he, so he goes around, you know, at the time then, there's no internet. Mm-hmm. Writers did a lot of speaking engagements. I know Dickens and stuff would always travel around doing speaking engagements. So so he's kind of traveling the world, giving these, uh, you know, lectures about the things that he's seen and, and witnessed and, and all that. Actually goes to the United States, uh, meets uh, Mark Twain and Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, and I thought it was kind of funny that they said him and Teddy Roosevelt didn't get along. I just thought that was funny. <laughs> that is kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> He gets married about this time, and I'm probably not going to focus too much on his personal life. He did have a mostly happy marriage and just kind of flash-forwarding uh, over the years. I think like, off the top of my head, they had like five kids. Uh, his wife did have an affair at one point, but they stayed married. And his kids, almost kind of like how his father saw him as a failure. A lot of Churchill's kids maybe didn't live up to his own expectations. And like his son and one of his daughters were into alcohol. Uh, one died as like a super young kid, like a three year old or something. Another one later, yeah. committed, Another one later committed suicide. Don't they? Uh, I think they either. Uh, it's been a minute since I've seen the first couple seasons of The Crown, but they either allude to that or like outright talk about it. Oh, I do they? Okay. I kind of forgotten about that part. I don't think the the kid that committed suicide. I don't think they talk about, but definitely the the one that's like died really really young. Oh, is, okay. Like, a, I think is it plays a pretty big role in one of the episodes. Oh, right. Kind of his memory of that that daughter who yeah. died young. Yeah, because that would have been before any of the events of the crown, but it would have been something that was still kind of strong, right. strong memory yeah. of him. Yeah, yeah. So in 1910, he was uh, promoted to Home Secretary, and the United States doesn't really have an equivalent position. It's maybe closest to Attorney General because he was in charge of basically uh, police and prisons throughout the country. Yeah. And uh, he did actually do a lot of reforms there. There's kind of a famous incident that will kind of play into his reputation later. So it's called the Siege of Sydney Street. Basically, these three guys had killed uh, some police officers, and they were kind of holed up as you know as the kind of chase to hunt them down. They were holed up in this house or apartment or whatever on Sydney Street, and the house catches fire. Actually, one account I saw said Churchill ordered the fire to be set. Another just said that the house got fire. Either way, as this house is burning up and these fugitives are inside, Churchill basically stops the fire department from putting out the fire, and the guys burn alive. 
That uh, it's not a not a one to one, but that sounds a lot like Waco, the Branch Davidians. Oh, yeah, interesting. Where they're trying to smoke yeah. out the last remaining people of the Branch Davidians, and they, yeah, the Feds end up setting the complex on fire and. Right, and uh, Churchill took a lot of, uh, I was going to say heat, we'll say flack for it, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And basically he just said, he's like, hey, these guys have just killed police officers, I'm not going to risk the lives of more police officers or, or firemen going in trying to save them, Yeah. whether from the fire itself or from them still being a threat. It's like the whole, you sure. know, you, you don't want to get bit by the dog as you're trying to, you know, save a rabid dog kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So he still took kind of some heat for it, but also, again... He's almost that little bit of sociopathic this whole time, too. And again, that's my diagnosis, not anything I actually read anywhere. But as far as he just really likes the action and kind of forgets sometimes about the humans involved. And, oh, a war. Isn't that exciting? Like, he gets excited about these things. Or, again, this incident on Sydney Street, he finds that kind of thing invigorating. He can't, he doesn't seem to be able to empathize with the criminals burning alive inside. Like, that's just something he doesn't seem to have the capacity to to do. Although... At the same time, not to defend his actions, but that's almost the kind of person that you would want to be in charge of public safety is to make those hard decisions like, hey, this building is burning. Absolutely. No, right. I mean, obviously, obviously, if he ordered the the building burned, like that's one thing that's, you know, reprehensible and horrible. But if the decision is, do we send firefighters in to put the fire out and maybe risk them coming into contact with these guys who are on the run from just having killed police officers. Yeah, I mean, it's a decision that he right. made and maybe was the right one, maybe was the wrong one. But that that type of like, oh, well, I'm just going to be cold and calculating and, and make this decision based on whatever. That's that's kind of the person that you want doing that. Right. It's Yeah. I don't know if we've, we've talked about it before. I don't know if it was on here, but that the idea of the uh, CEOs and surgeons, you know, you actually tend to want them to be a little sociopathic so they can make those decisions without taking right. emotion into account. So yeah, sometimes you need, right. need that person. So yeah, he kind of keeps going uh, up, up the ranks here. And uh, later, actually that same year, he is named first Lord of the Admiralty. And oh, I didn't write down the notice. At some point in here, he, he was kind of like one of the youngest members of the government in decades and again as an american my understanding of all this is is pretty loose well the way i kind of have gathered it is that so you you can get elected to be a member of parliament basically means you have a vote in parliament but it doesn't necessarily mean you have a a role as like a job in the government so there's the members of parliament who vote but then as you kind of work your way up and get promoted you can get named to an actual government position but that's separate than being a member of parliament but you can be both at the same time yeah because like well, to get to be the Home Secretary, you have to be an MP first, right? Right, but you can be an MP where basically you actually have a regular job and have to show up to vote because it's not necessarily yeah, like yeah, a member yeah. of Congress in the United States where it has yeah. a it has enough pay to kind of live off of or whatever. Right. Yeah, that is kind of different. It, it'd be kind of like uh, if like the the Secretary of Defense and the Attorney General, Secretary of State, like those are people that we pick from Congress. Like, you have to be a congressman first and then you can be that. Right, and that they're also still voting members of Congress while in those positions. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Anyway, so yes, first Lord of the Admiralty, uh, which is basically the commander in chief of the British Navy uh, at the time. I don't think it's a position that still exists in the same way today. So he was not he was not in the Navy, though, right? He was in the army, but then he just gets this. Is it kind of a civilian position? Yes. Yeah, it, it does seem to be. A, he's not in the army anymore. And just as it as an MP, he gets named first Lord of the Admiralty, even though, yeah, he's not his background wasn't Navy. He was more of an army guy. And it, it, it just seemed to be, yes, a civilian position, to your point. 
I, I could be wrong, but that's the way I, I saw it. And so, yeah, so we're getting into the early 19-teens. People are getting a little nervous about Germany. Of course, again, this is the first time we get a little nervous about Germany, not the second yeah. time we get a little nervous about Germany. So Churchill's vowing to uh, build two British ships for everyone the Germans build. He actually coins the term seaplane cool. and, and has a hundred of those built. And what I wrote here is, uh, so even before World War I even starts, he's already kind of done so much and had this fascinating life. He's 39 years old, you know, the age of Cleopatra's entire lifespan. And right. he's traveled the world as a soldier, wrote so much about it, became, you know, a soldier, a speaker, a writer, a POW, and this quick rise through British politics is kind of this wunderkind. Like, it's like, wow, what has this guy got in store for him? <laughs> Wouldn't old Pa be proud? <laughs> yeah. So uh, we now get into the Great War, which, uh, you know, it wasn't World War One because they didn't yet know there would be a sequel. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yes, the whole assassination of the Austrian Archduke and all that, triggering that series of alliances that had been set up over the previous decades and so uh, Churchill, in addition to being in charge of the Navy at the outbreak of World War One, is also responsible for Britain's air defense. Uh, he kind of just spends the first part of the war traveling all over Europe and just kind of overseeing things. He actually does have, before we get to the Glibly stuff, he does have the first uh, chink in his armor when he, uh, he promises reinforcements for Antwerp in Belgium, but the Germans still take the city. I mean, it's just a small thing, you know, whatever. It's just the first, like I said, first chink in his armor. Like he promised to reinforcements and then didn't deliver? Well, or they couldn't get there in time. Oh, okay. Before he had time to get, it, almost like, a, I guess you could say a Benghazi kind of thing here, where it's like, oh yeah, we'll definitely help you out. Oh, it's too late. So because everything was so tough in Europe, you know, you're getting into this trench warfare stuff. He had the idea, okay, well, we need to relieve pressure off the Russians mm -hmm. by going through the Middle East. And we can basically get through the Dardanelles straight and maybe even take Constantinople. And he got, mm -hmm. you know, basically everyone else on board with this idea. And it was an absolute disaster. The idea itself wasn't a bad one, per se, but it just took too long to make everything happen. And we saw, we did the whole movie about Gallipoli, where the Turks are able to, you know, take out the British forces with the Australians and New Zealands. Yeah. But even before that had happened, they lost like a ton of ships. It was just a mess and one of the biggest failures in kind of British military history. And yeah. Churchill was blamed and demoted. They talk about that, too in Lawrence of Arabia about basically the entire like Middle Eastern campaign of World War One. It wasn't really taken seriously. It was just kind of for distraction's sake. And mm. they even mentioned like T. E. Lawrence's Arab revolt, they call it a sideshow of a sideshow. Oh, that's right. Like, no, the real war is in Europe. No one actually gives a shit about anything that we're doing. Interesting. But it's just so that we can basically force the Germans and the Turks to fight on two fronts so they couldn't focus all of their attention right, they had right. to focus some further east yep yep again i talk about you know churchill being this great rise and fall and redemption story like one of the greatest rise and falls and redemption stories in history it's also not as simple as one rise one fall <laughs> one redemption yeah it's a very squiggly line kind of back and forth right. that trends to this rise heading into world war one and then trends into this fall kind of following the Dardanelles and the Gallipoli stuff as we get back into World War II with the ultimate redemption. But anyway, so yeah. uh, by the end of 1905, he was still an MP, uh, but he had resigned from the government, kind of like we were saying before. So he's still an MP, but he's not, he doesn't have a job in the government. So what was his 
first Lord of the Admiralty, is that is that the position from which he is like promising these reinforcements and making decisions for the military? Is that his position at that time as first Lord of the Admiralty? Yes. And then he okay. is demoted to a position I don't remember, but still within the government, but then ultimately right. resigns that lowered position. And he's and he's an MP this whole time. Like that's yeah, all yeah. Po- okay. Yep, yep. So stays an MP. Uh, but again, we talked about him being just this man of action. So he rejoins the army at like forty years old and is like given command of troops that are fighting on the Western Front. And he's there in battle. He's almost killed by a piece of shrapnel that just misses him. And he's like, and his men love him. He's just kind of oh, so he's fighting in Europe now. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, I said, re- like I said, literally rejoins the army and is commanding troops in battle in World War One. Yeah, that's crazy. So yeah, so he so again, he's still in the House of Commons. He's still you know still in Parliament. He's still kind of then. It wasn't like it was the complete fall. He just yes, he was super high up and now is not. But he's still advocating for things that can help the war effort. And maybe he's not listened to as much as he was before, but he's still out there fighting the good fight, trying to help win the war, trying to advocate for positive change, and just all the things that, you know, the nuts and bolts of what you need to win a war kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And he's just always a guy who's never afraid to share his ideas, obviously. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Winston is nothing if not confident of his own opinion. <laughs> right. Well, uh, one of the things I didn't write down because it actually ties into what we saw in, say, Win the Shakes of Barley. Because one of the things he mentioned was that, oh, hey, we should, uh, when we're drafting people for the war, we should include the Irish. And uh, and that didn't happen. But just, uh, that would not have gone over well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they didn't even want to be considered part of Britain. And then you're going to draft them into this war. Uh, yeah, no, right. that would that would have been a massive revolt, I would imagine. He was also a big supporter of the Black and Tans that were over there terrorizing uh, the Irish and keep trying to keep them, them sure. in line. So. Well, isn't that kind of one of the big criticisms about him is he was like, not only did he not think that imperialism was bad, he thought that it was like good. He like loved imperialism and loved the monarchy, loved the fact that Britain was projecting its power all over the world. Absolutely, yeah. He was a proud Brit who was proud of the empire, and it definitely would have been in the those in the mindset of we are helping these people by colonizing, right. Like, oh, we need to, we need to be in India to like civilize their savage ways and stuff like that. Yes, that Churchill was on board with those missions, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and we've talked about before that he didn't like Gandhi because Gandhi was just kind of this, you know, upstart who thinks he's as good as the whites. And like, so there's definitely shades right. of all that going yeah. on. Um, and er- and early on too, again, just we're kind of talking about this stuff. Uh, he was also not a fan of women's suffrage early on. He did later come around and vote for it, but yeah. So early on, he mm-hmm. kind of had a lot of these you know, racist tendencies. Some would say even for the time, I actually just, a YouTube video I just watched this morning was uh, a woman kind of talking about how, yeah, even kind of other members of parliament said he needed to tone down the racism at the time. Right. In like, in the 19, what what are we talking about? Like the 20s, the 30s? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like if you're, if, if people in the 20s (laughs) and 30s are like, hey, you are like a little racist, this like, (laughs) pretty, pretty fucking racist. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of (laughs) gross. Now, at the same time, he was also always one to change his mind, given new information. So, and that's also, too, we haven't okay. really talked about how he switched his parties. So he, he famously go, switches parties from the conservatives to the liberals. And I kind of even talked about on the first round with him that he was really kind of a conservative liberal, where he does kind of have these traditional values and views of things, but is also always looking at how things could be better 
and trying to advocate for change. When, when did he when did he change his party? Well, he did multiple times. So actually, so I was gonna say because in World War Two, he's back as a conservative party, right? Right. But so basically, I think it was pre World War One. So he entered Parliament as a conservative. Switched, I think, even pre World War One to the Liberals. Okay. But the whole idea is today, and this and this is something that would be it would actually be refreshing to have a politician like this in the United States today, where it's like he could not care less about what the party line was. Yeah. Winston had his own ideas on every issue, and they were his ideas and his own opinions, and party be damned, and I'll go with whichever party helps me advocate my policies. Party right. party meant nothing. It was all about what was best for the, the country. And again, people will play lip service to, I think, that stuff in today's political world. But in practice, yeah, it's just yeah, lip service. And in, and in practice, they, they don't do it. Maybe a little bit with McCain, honestly. Think about McCain voting against uh, that repeal of Obamacare right before he died. Right. That maybe had shades of it. But Churchill just kind of lived and breathed that mentality yeah. his whole political career, which, again, made enemies on both parties because right. they couldn't rely on him to back the party because he was just had his own opinions on everything. And I know in in the UK they it's not it's not as strict of a two party system as it is here. So oh, right, it's different. Right, right. But at, at that time, was was conservative and liberal basically like roughly like Republican and Democrat? Where like sure, there's other parties, but they're for the most part, it's these two. Cause I know now they have like the labor party, but there's right. like tons of political parties in, in the UK though. Right. I, I would say roughly speaking, you could say conservative liberal was Democrat and Republican, but that's a gross oversimplification because I did not deep dive into British politics. Uh, and right. I only have a very loose understanding of, of them, but I, I think we're close enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, there was a whole commission on the Dardanelles that did ultimately exonerate him to a point like the public can still kind of saw maybe it as his failing, but he was not held personally responsible for the failings of Gallipoli. A lot, of, a lot of the problems that they had with not being able to get stuff in place in time, that wasn't his fault. So it was still maybe the right idea. It just it, the idea failed. So the commission didn't hold him personally responsible. And he was even given more responsibility kind of back as World War One kind of wound down. He was getting back into kind of back into the government and a little, little more position. So again, the fall wasn't absolute, uh, but it did kind of trend that way. And he did actually, a few years later in the 20s, uh, ended up actually getting voted out of parliament. So he did ultimately kind of lose his seat. Like I said, he kind of a fall, tick back up. Oh, but then he loses his office. So he's kind of drops again. Uh, this is kind of when one of his daughter died, daughters died. His mom died. So early 20s for Winston, things were, things were not going well. So what I wrote here is uh, he was 48 years old and his political career was essentially over. Because mm-hmm. you just think about it. So like in the mid-20s, there's, there's no war anymore, which is kind of when he thrived. Of course, he had the big mistake. He's not in parliament anymore. And he's 48. So it's like, yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's been a good ride. I guess I did what I could. And he you know, gets, gets kind of depressed because, again, he's a man of action. So he has nothing to do. Right. So he just kind of starts focusing on his writing. He's writing his memoirs. And again, it just kind of has the feel of someone whose career is over. Which like today, looking back, it's like it seems insane that at 48, before any of the World War II stuff, he's like, oh, yeah, I've I've, like done enough. I'm going to write my memoirs now. It's like you haven't even done the stuff that you're most famous for, like most. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's that's crazy. It just goes to show like how interesting his life is that. Before he even did all the stuff that we that is like he's most known for today, he was already like, "Oh, I've done a, some pretty cool, interesting stuff. I have enough to like write memoirs." 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. And then, and then, of course, again, just one more thing. So in the stock market crash of 1929, oh, well, he lost his butt because he had so much invested in, in the oh, stock right, market. Yeah. Um, and then he's, uh, he's actually still doing more lecture tours just to kind of make money because he lost all his money and can still kind of do these lectures. He's in New York City and he's hit by a car. And like, because he like forgot, you know, like what way we drive on the, on the, anyway. Oh, so yeah. yeah, he's looking the wrong way. Yeah, basically. <laughs> and yeah, so on top of everything else, he's literally hit by a car after the stock market crash, takes all his money. Like yeah. things are not going well for Winston Churchill. And just on, on that note, on the driving side here in the United States, we drive on the right side of the road, and that's because it's the one that's named after being correct. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> I, I'm I'm not enough of a patriot, I guess, to say that it's on nothing more than a 50-50 arbitrary choice, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm the same way with, like, you know, like, right-handedness. Like, hey, oh, that's why, because I'm left-handed, so screw you! <laughs> <laughs> Like, there's a reason that it's, you know, right and wrong. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, and French for, like, the law is even, like, le droit, like, the right. <laughs> oh, yeah. I think it's the same in, in Spanish. Yeah. Too. Okay. Oh, wait, not, not for the law, but, like, for... Right, anyways. Yeah, anyway. So, he's in semi-retirement, just kind of staving off depression with writing and doing these other things. He becomes a, a bricklayer, like gets enough into it that he actually like joins like the bricklayers union and stuff and is building all these like walls and gardens and things and just kind of getting into that and he's a painter and just again he's just kind of doing his thing it's interesting too that he is he's like a conservative politician but he's also a member of a union well but again i I mean those things ebb and flow so much that i don't even think that's I mean, your comment's not relevant. I'm just saying, like, being (laughs) anti-union is just kind of a contemporary United States right-wing thing. That's not like a all-over-the-world always thing, I don't think. Sure. But, but yeah, yeah. Anyway, so he's also not one to ever hide his opinion. So Uh as this uh, chap named Hitler and these Nazis are kind of rising throughout the 1930s in Germany and in Europe... Churchill is an outspoken critic early of what they represent. He recognizes early on that it's potentially dangerous what they're doing. And he's also kind of in and out of Parliament again. He just kind of like run for MP again. So during this long span here, he is kind of in and out uh, of Parliament in semi-retirement. But again, he's just more, he's a background player who isn't afraid to voice his opinion. But no one really takes seriously following all the party switching, the Dardanelles, even though the fire thing is still kind of just a knock on his character. So when Chamberlain is advocating appeasement towards Hitler, Churchill just is kind of like pounding his fist like, no, seriously, Europe needs to stand up now against Hitler. Yeah. Like this, even like in 1938, he's just like, seriously, yeah. listen to me. Which, and, and no one's taking him seriously. Right. I was going to say, because even at the at the time, even like, some members of the royal family were like yes. buddy buddy with yeah. Nazis. Yeah, like l- literally the the king. Not sorry. Well, the the one who advocates, the king one who advocates. Edward. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. is like famously was down with the Nazis as well as well. Yeah, just other other people in Britain. Well, and it's and it's even kind of been whitewashed out of American history. The extent to which remember again oh, before yeah. we know about the atrocities. 
he's a nationalist who's representing the best interest of the German people and trying to unite them, make them strong again, making Germany great again. Yeah. So there was a yep. big push in the United States for like, yeah, I don't see what Hitler, I don't see what's so wrong with this Hitler guy. I kind of respect what he's doing. That was exactly. all over the place. Yep. And we've whitewashed it from American history. Yeah. Yes. So everything I said from the beginning, as World War II begins, the stage is set for Churchill to be kind of this ultimate right man at the right place at the right time to go up against Hitler. Now, he is not the, he's not in charge yet, though. But as he's kind of coming back into the fold, he actually is renamed First Lord of the Admiralty, the same position he held at the beginning of World War One. So he's back in this important position in the government. He is definitely a wartime guy. He's now 64, almost 65 years old when, when the Germans invade Poland. And he just kind of is, again, he's a man of action. This is kind of what he's made for. So he kind of starts doing the job as First Lord of the Admiralty. And in April of 1940, basically, I forget what the exact one was, but the public sentiment has shifted against Chamberlain. Everything he's tried to do against Hitler has failed, and the Germans keep making these advances. Oh, actually, yeah. So the straw that broke the camel's back was actually Norway. When the British were unable to stop Germany from invading Norway, Parliament was just done with Chamberlain, and he is forced to resign, Mm -hmm. and Winston Churchill becomes Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And he even said, I mentioned the Serena Williams quote, but yeah, Churchill himself said, you know, later, later on that, you know, his whole life had been a preparation for this hour and for this trial. Now, again, I think there's a little bit too much of the he likes war kind of thing. Like, yes, he's the perfect guy for it, but it's almost a little gross how like he's like, yeah, war, let's do this. Right. I am ready. But like you said, that's who you need to fight Hitler. The person who is excited and invigorated in his mid-60s about getting this job done. And again, remember, France surrenders pretty early. And there's talk of, well, hey, should Britain kind of negotiate with Hitler and figure out, okay, how can we do damage control here? Maybe say, okay, here's where we'll draw the lines. Britain will be safe. And Churchill, with the whole country behind him, is like, no, we are fighting to the bitter end. And we are going to win. And he's saying that way before anyone should actually be rightfully confident that they're going to win. Right. And he becomes just this rallying point for the British people and the British public as you get into all the, you know, the bombing of Britain and he's touring the wreckage and no one would blame the British if morale dropped and they wanted to just negotiate and stop and put it into it. Right. But he keeps the morale high. He says, we're never going to surrender. I'm getting chills right now, just as the British people would have back then. Oh, yeah. Listening to that speech, even today, you know, we will fight on the beaches. We will fight on the land. Yes, like, yes. That's like we will never huge, surrender. Like pump up energy. Yes, yes, yeah. And so, yeah. So he's setting up. You know, he ends up with this alliance with Stalin, which again, he wasn't a big fan of the Soviets. But that was uh, mirrored by like the United States at the time as well. It was kind of like a necessary evil. Like, oh, okay, I guess we got to like be friends with Stalin or at least tolerate him because he's helping us fight the nazis right which is like in uh in Patton, which we didn't cover Patton, but he talks about uh how after we're done you know with germany we already got our armies here let's just keep going let's just fight russia next <laughs> <laughs> and he even took some flack for even like warning stalin of a german invasion of course churchill is famous for his one-liners and he says uh well if hitler invaded hell i would at least make a favorable reference to the devil as in <laughs> let the devil know hitler's coming right yeah so same kind of thing with stalin there 
And so I kind of I, I kind of wrote my notes here. It's like ironically, I don't feel the need to detail World War Two. So we could go point by point, month by month in World War Two. But right, I, you know, just I think just suffice it to say he is successful. He is the one who helped. Basically, he's recruiting the Americans. Obviously, ultimately, it was Pearl Harbor that kind of helped shift American sentiment. But him and Roosevelt were already in talks before that. Obviously. Franklin Roosevelt, not Teddy Roosevelt, who he didn't get along with. Right. So there's a little bit, too, of as the war does evolve and America takes more and more of a prominent role in what's going on with the military campaigns, Churchill is kind of relegated more to a back seat as far as just how everyone is perceiving this war. It is now seen as the Americans leading the war, and Churchill is kind of seen as more just the leader of the British who are the Americans' buddy. And now that we've brought in basically our our big friends to help us fight here, yeah. but... It's tricky, too, because a little bit of British sentiment was maybe like, oh, why are you taking a backseat to, to Roosevelt? Or sorry, yeah, it's Roosevelt. And like, you need to keep, you know, you're in charge, you're in charge. And he really didn't kind of fight to fight for it as far as he was just like, no, I'm, I'm OK. It's fine. The whole, the whole goal is to win the war. And if Roosevelt right. wants to be the face of the conflict now, let him be. It's not that big a deal. And again, we ultimately do do win the war. And I do think it's, again, we grew up with all these American movies, how, you know, it's, we saved the world. And I think it's important to recognize that that is not how the British see it. And, and the comparison I would actually make is, so obviously in the American Revolution, we defeated the British to win our independence. But we right. would not have done so without the help of the French. We would have right. lost the war without the help of the French. But you know what would be really annoying? Is if every time we bring up the Revolutionary War, the French are like, yeah, you're welcome. Right. Which they don't really do, but we do that to Britain about World War II, and it's been, yeah, it's kind of a similar comparison. They needed our help, but right, they were doing great. The big difference is that no Nazi planes were bombing New York City. Oh, true, like, true. You know, and you know, it, it was years of yeah of air raids and like the Battle of Britain before we ever entered the war. Anyway, and we had the luxury of being all the way across the ocean from right. either one of our adversaries. Right, right. So yeah, it's it's a yeah, it's it's not a one to one. Right. So the Brits see this as their greatest shining hour, and the whole idea that the Germans woke the lion of Great Britain, who able to just put a smackdown on them. And yes, the Americans helped. And right, I'm saying I'm kind of okay with that interpretation of it. That yes, they needed the American help. But it was their conflict kind of primarily, and the, everyone else was kind of helping. It's like the French were helping what they could after surrender, the Russians and the, and the Americans. But it was the British conflict against the Germans, and Churchill led that conflict. And again, history is always complicated, but I just want to kind of share with our American audience that it's not as simple as how it's painted through American history classes and American movies, but also not as... <laughs> Probably the British grew up seeing it where the Americans were an afterthought. So, again, truth is always right. in the middle, right? That is almost, you could kind of call that, you know, if we're telling the story of Churchill, that is kind of the climax. And post World War II is more of his denouement. He actually, not long after the war, actually loses his seat in Parliament. And it's in a lot of, you know, his friends would be like, can you believe the public was so like ungrateful for the role you played? And he's like, you know what? This conflict was so hard on everyone. If I need to kind of get painted away with the memories of the war, so be it. And he was kind of okay with that. And again, he kind of comes, he becomes prime minister again in 1951 to 55. And that's, of course, where he kind of helps a young Queen Elizabeth II 
Right. And uh, she kind of sees him as this important father figure. Because, again, she's only queen because her dad died. That's kind of how it works. Yeah. And so Churchill is able to kind of fill that role. And they kind of, and we do see in the crown, but I do think it kind of reflects reality there where they kind of butt heads. But also, they are, you know, she respects the heck out of him and he admires her and her kind of spirit. And there's that relationship. And then he kind of has poor health, a series of strokes. He ultimately kind of, you know, retires from public life. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's honestly, it's kind of surprising that he even, like, lived as long as he did because he was, like, obviously famously overweight, constantly smoking right. cigars, constantly drinking, right. eating whatever he wanted. Like, it's no surprise that he had <laughs> health problems later right. on in his life. And surprising he didn't even have even more, honestly. Right. Yeah. So he resigns uh, for poor health in 1955 and still lives another decade to the age of 90. Yeah. Yeah. With, yeah. With, with, with all the cigars and drinking and, and everything. And of course, in 1953, he wins the Nobel Prize for literature for all that, all that historical writing that we, we've talked about. In addition to the war campaigns, obviously his own memoirs. He would even write like, you know, he wrote the biography of his father and other kind of family members mm-hmm. and just was always kind of doing that. Uh, it, it wouldn't be a Winston Churchill rundown unless if without me giving a few more of his uh, famous quotes. Uh, <laughs> one, actually, this is even from like when he was pretty young in his 20s. He said, uh, nothing in life is so exhilarating as to be shot at without result. I'm like, <laughs> I like that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, as as World War II was breaking out, he said, "If we win, nobody will care. If we lose, there will be nobody to care." Yeah. Let's see. Uh, here, here's another one from the '40s. In the course of my life, I have often had to eat my words, and I must confess that I have always found it a wholesome diet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in 1949, so we're after the war. He's uh, kind of not yet uh, become his his second tenure as uh, prime minister, though. Uh, he says, "I am ready to meet my maker." Whether my maker is prepared for the great ordeal of meeting me is another matter. <laughs> Let's see. Uh, oh, a photographer. And I, actually, I didn't see when this was. I don't know if this is maybe at his 80th birthday or his 90th birthday or whatever. But the photographer, I guess, said, I hope, sir, that I shall uh, uh, shoot your picture for your 100th birthday. And Churchill said, I don't see why not, young man. You look reasonably fit and healthy. <laughs> <laughs> And what I think we, I think I mentioned uh, last week, you know, the the female MP who says, "Winston, you are drunk, and what's more, you are disgustingly drunk." And then Churchill says, "Bessie, my dear, you are ugly, and what's more, you are disgustingly ugly. But tomorrow I shall be sober, and you will still be disgustingly ugly." <laughs> and the last one I wanted to share was, uh, "All I can say is that I have taken more out of alcohol than alcohol has taken out of me." <laughs> and again, just. He, had, he just had this wit about him, and obviously the writing and everything was good enough to win a Nobel Prize, and and just kind of this absolute figure of prestige and icon is what I was looking for in British history, yeah. just an absolute icon, and I think he'll continue to be, yes, despite the failings, and so, and again, I think it's complicated. I you know I watched a debate on YouTube where basically one uh, Piers Morgan was saying like. How dare you impugn the character of Winston Churchill? And the lady was basically just trying to say, like, I'm just trying to say there's a full picture and that it's good and healthy of a society to recognize the full picture. That, yes, this man can be our greatest hero and also have done some crappy things and had some crappy opinions and wasn't always a good guy. Like, that's fine. Honestly, it's the same thing we talked about in Downfall, where you recognize the humanity of the evil people 
so that you know that we are at risk of falling to those depths. And at the same time, you have to recognize the flaws in your heroes so you recognize that we can become our heroes. And so, I I don't know, I I think that's all important. And that is the life of Winston Churchill. And now we have the unenviable task of deciding who will advance between Puyi and Winston Churchill. And it does come down to what we had talked about uh, well, sorry, it may come down to what we talked about with agency. And I will say, before you chime in here, to my part, if we're talking about who lived the most interesting life in history, though, I don't know to what extent agency matters. Like, interesting is interesting. Whether you directed that interesting or lived through that interesting, is that relevant to the tournament or not? So what are your initial thoughts? I think it is. Okay. I think that it's, you know, it's it's one thing for your life to be interesting to you or interesting to onlookers, but if I think that it makes you more interesting to have had a hand in shaping that world and shaping that reality. And that's a good point. And like uh, to be honest, I think there's just there's just more with Winston Churchill. Like there's just more stuff. Like with Puyi, there's a lot of stuff, but with Winston Churchill, there's just so much more. Okay, so this may be the first time we have to go to the bid because my final uh, take is going to be that I abs- I don't disagree with anything you're saying, and I'm a huge Winston Churchill fan, and I had every intention of selling him right here to our listeners and myself. What I ultimately would say though is, yep, there are. Dozens and dozens of, not Churchills, but politicians who have lived interesting lives, been in the military, and then do great things in their leadership roles, and they may or may not be called to action during times of war. There are several people who fill that role that wear that hat. I can't think of another Puyi who is the emperor at the end of thousands of years, literally thousands of years of Chinese emperors. And he's able to see the end of that and the rise of communism in the 20th century and how much change he's change he saw in his life. And yeah, but change that he saw going around him that he didn't have anything to do with. He wasn't instrumental in making no, right. that change. And the only reason he was leader is because he was born of the right family. And then the Japanese thought that he'd be useful. And then the only reason he wasn't killed after World War II is because Mao thought he'd be useful. Like, right. I just, I think that he just, He's lucking out too much for me to actually to vote for him over Winston Churchill, who, even though he was obviously insanely privileged, did more to shape his own life and shape his own world than Puyi did. No, and I, and I don't disagree with that. And, that. and that is a good argument in the sense that Winston is interesting because he made himself interesting. And Puyi is interesting because he was on an interesting roller coaster that he had right. nothing to do with. I get that argument. I think it's the difference between riding a roller coaster and being a pilot. It's yeah, like but, this, no, you're, and you're not wrong. And then, but, then, but then to my point, yeah, and there are lots of pilots, and Puyi was on a unique roller coaster that no one else has ever been on that's the most fascinating roller coaster in human history, arguably. So I, I don't disagree with any of your points. I, yeah. it, it, it does come down to the criteria in the tournament. But again, I do think Puyi is, he kind of stands out as very unique compared to some of these other people in positions of actual authority. A lot of these people are leaders. They're kings and generals, and they have actual agency and control. But that's kind of what I'm saying is that's common. Puyi was on a ride like we've never seen. Like, it would be like a Lady Jane Grey who's just like, oh, hi, I exist, and I'm a descendant of Henry VII. Oh, you're going to make me queen? Oh, I'm executed. Like, like that, but on a larger scale because he went through kind of more 
uh, of a roller coaster. So again, let's uh, let's put it to let's put it to the numbers. So uh, for those who haven't listened to every episode of the tournament, we did decide that we would break ties by basically just doing a blind vote. We both have a pool of uh, 100 points. In the first round, we used that three times, it looks like, and then we have not yet, this is our fourth matchup of the Sweet 16, and we have not yet, we've actually agreed every time, so we will go to a blind vote of 100 points, and whoever spends the most points, their their person will advance. So, Logan, you're ready to do that? So we're going to type in our bid. Okay, so think, let's see. So we got, after this, we got four more matchups this round. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> I already hit my thing. Go ahead, hit yours, okay. sir. Well, I'll just, I already had mine in there. I'll just wait yeah, for okay. three, two, one, go. One, two, three, enter. You, yeah. You got it. <laughs> oh. Okay. Okay. Like, I wanted, I wanted Winston Churchill to win, but I did, I obviously didn't care about it nearly as much as you did. Okay. Well, but I was also thinking so too. So, yeah. So, for a listener, uh, Winston, uh, Winston, <laughs> Logan for Winston bid five, and I bid 32 to, for Puyi, which is kind of, uh, parallel to when he bid 40 for Isabella and I bid seven for Vlad the Impaler. Yeah. No, my, my thought was that we agree most of the time. So I right. didn't see this as I needed to save my points to spread them out over the next four matchups because we might agree on the next four matchups. So my thought was right. I'll, I'll save two thirds of my points for going oh. forward. And uh, even thinking that if you bid 33, I'd be okay with losing. You know what I'm saying? Like I actually in my mind started with 34 and went down 33 32 just to kind of uh save some points in case you i was okay with losing to you if you had bid like 33 34 okay so that's how it goes again i love winston churchill i had a blast advocating for him or giving his uh biography but yeah based on the system we set up uh the last emperor puyi will advance and as the lowest remaining seed in the modern times bracket he actually, we can say, will be going up against Cleopatra in the next round. Yep. So yeah, kind of just sheer coincidence. We do actually have two uh, elite eight matchups already, already kind of uh, spelled out. Napoleon will go up against Empress Matilda, and Cleopatra will go up against Puyi. So we won't always actually now going forward, we will know that because in the reverse now is uh, and as we get into the final four matchups of the Sweet Sixteen, we'll know exactly where because they'll all go into the opposite spots from their region. Uh, right. So we'll kind of know as we go. Just kind of a coincidence how it worked out that way. Or I forced that to happen by voting it that way. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah. So that's kind of all we have to do there. Next week, we will get to back to the Ancient Ones, where we will have Oshaka the Great versus Ramses the Great. So thanks for listening, and tune in next time. 